0: Talking about Rifka, Muhammad Al Kurd's new poetry book. Rifka is the name of his grandmother. His father told him anger is a luxury that we cannot afford. Be composed, calm, still, laugh when they ask you, smile when they talk, answer them, educate them. Even though the situation that you're in commands anger and so many other emotions.
1: They're asking him about Hamas (laughs) and he's like, my boy, they're knocking down the door. What are you talking about?
0: I wish the earth would split and swallow me. Iraq veteran cites his fear of fireworks. They think they're the only ones with PTSD. We are literate in peeling off our own skin to sleep. I cried, not for the house, but for the memories I could have had inside it.
1: Palestine has already been one of the innovators of technology while under occupation and siege, so we can only imagine what would have been if not for this nasty militia of Zionist gangs who stole everything. (laughs)
0: Hello and welcome to the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gaza Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B.
1: What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Schertzer on Instagram, and you can call me Mikey Intifada if you saw the rally in Poland that had one Palestinian flag and think that that represents all free Palestine's movement, but everybody chanting death to Arabs in the middle of Jerusalem is okie dokie for you.
0: The mental gymnastics. It never gets easier.
1: They do get limber, though. (laughs)
0: Maybe they get a little more stretchy. Yeah, you're right. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. And as always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you wanna get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at the palestinepod. We're also still going strong on Patreon. So if you love the Palestine Pod and you wanna support the project, join our Patreon where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and an additional one to two podcasts per week, including the Patreon pod, which is a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine pop culture and you get to know us a little bit better. Feel free to join our Patreon. We are also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with Patreon subscribers only. Really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com/slash PalestinePod. We're talking about this book. Rifka. Rifka. It is Mohammed al-Kurd's new poetry book. Rifka is the name of his grandmother, and it is a collection of poems dedicated to his grandmother. They also contain references to her life story with her exile from Haifa to then the family's current dispossession in Sheikh Jarrah and also recounting some of the events and the emotions of the Nakba and plenty of other stuff there are things in it that did make me stop and reflect and so I wanted to go over those it's interesting the forward to the book is Mohammed writing. As I write this, our family lawyer is attempting to persuade a settler judge to rule against settlements. Zebra at the mercy of a jury of hyenas. It really is such an absurd situation. Like absurdity is the theme that is contained in every poem of the book. They're all about different things, but every single one of them has this element of, isn't this absurd? And there's a couple of themes that I wanted to kind of discuss. He mentions in one of the, the poems, this is why we dance, how his father told him, anger is a luxury that we cannot afford. Be composed, calm, still, laugh when they ask you, smile when they talk, answer them, educate them. This reminds me of something we've talked about before on the pod, which is the idea of having to be the perfect victim and then having to be as you are the perfect victim. Also, you know, this sort of educator, really composed and eloquent spokesperson for your cause, like you can't afford to be angry because everything's already stacked against you. So you have to show that you're not fulfilling that stereotype or that cliche by being, you know, the angry Palestinian or the angry Arab or whatever it is. And that makes me think about the mental toll that it takes to do the work anger is a luxury we cannot afford even though the situation that you're in commands anger and so many other emotions it's something that you know i wrestle with because part of the the debate is okay do you do you talk about what's happening from a distance you talk about it in terms of human rights violations and the law and you use words that are neutral to describe really not neutral situations, or do you get angry? Do you use emotion in your voice? Is that emotion distracting? Is it unprofessional? You have to strike this balance between using your passion and your emotion, but then also like restricting it in a way so that your message is still heard, right? By by your audience. And the fact that Muhammad has become really this spokesperson for the cause of Sheikh Jarrah, but even for the cause of Palestine more generally. And his father is telling him, anger is a luxury we cannot afford. Be composed and calm and laugh when they ask you and smile when they talk and answer them and educate them. It just makes me think of the emotional toll that that all of that takes on somebody who's living this absurdity, who's living the oppression in real time, but then has to smile for reporters and to you know, contain himself a little bit, and and to be restricted, and use restraint when he speaks, so that he appears palatable, right? Yeah,
1: I remember when Mohammed El Kurd was doing the media run, and I was thinking to myself, this guy not only has to have been fluent in English, right, like because he lived in America and went to college here, et cetera but he also has to, in the midst of literally being expelled from his house, explain, justify his presence in his own house, in his own land, while a brutal colonizing force is literally beating down the doors outside, like house by house. Like they said, they said house by house, and he has to, in that time, keep his composure right yeah speak in a language that is not his primary tongue right i presume that he learned arabic first right and and like also he had to like have a haircut you know what i mean he's he's lined up like yeah i've never seen a palestinian that doesn't look good while advocating for palestine
0: right everybody
1: understands that the image is a huge part of it because if you could be discredited in any singular way, right? Right. The Zionists will harp on that opportunity. And they'll do it anyways. They'll do it even if right. there's nothing, right? They'll make stuff up, they'll plant stuff on you. But I remember thinking to myself, wow, this guy has an insane level of composure because he has kept his cool when there are guns blazing outside, right? right. Like, It's not safe to be in the neighborhood he's in. And he's on CNN talking about, like, do you support the violent displacement of me and my family?
0: Yes. And then being met with reporters asking him, do you support violence?
1: They're asking him about Hamas. (laughs) And he's like, my boy, they're knocking down the door. What are you talking about? Right.
0: It really is absurd. It really, really is absurd. And in fact.
1: I also think about Yusuf, right? Joe Gaza. Yeah. Who has to be this like picture-perfect messenger for the outside world so that people just get a glimpse of what's happening inside Gaza.
0: Right. Muhammad actually makes reference to his discussions with reporters in his poetry. There's a poem called Sheikh Jarrah Is Burning, And he says, this is the second month of the blockade. Media won't call it illegal. American settlers find their way into the front yard and their billionaires take us to court. Their laws are daggers. Their laws are hungry. Armed colonizers peacock around my street with impunity. And then he goes on later to say, I told an American reporter, this is apartheid, but she's not entirely convinced. I look at the cuts she sustained jumping over my neighbor's fence, which is crazy, right? Like he's, he's talking about a conversation he had with a reporter on the ground, like in Sheikh Jarrah. And he's like, yeah, so this is apartheid. And she's like, "Mm, I'm not sure about that. And next thing you know, she's having to Escape probably some tear gas or some shooting or whatever it is. And she gets cut up jumping over a fence. But yeah, let's debate whether or not it's apartheid. It's interesting because one theme that comes up quite a bit is mental health. And he didn't shy away from it. He says in one poem, Most days I'm in psychosis. Spine to my storms, bait to my rage, tired metaphors. He also says that he won't sit on a recliner and pay $200 an hour to make villains out of coffee stains. So he talks about his resistance there to seeing a therapist. You know, he won't sit on a recliner and pay $200 an hour, but he uses the words. He says, Most days I'm in psychosis. He uses those words to describe his mental state. In another poem, he uses very descriptive imagery to describe mental anguish. He says, I wish a snake would swallow me. I wish the earth would split and swallow me. Iraq veteran cites his fear of fireworks. They think they're the only ones with PTSD. We are literate in peeling off our own skin to sleep. We live like walking debris. Like, hold on. We are literate in peeling off our own skin to sleep. You think
1: that's literal or metaphorical?
0: I mean, no, of course it's metaphorical, right? But I don't idea- know. It
1: could be. It could be somebody talking about like a burn victim. You know, it's like,
0: sure, could be. But but you know, the idea is he's saying, you know, the white colonizer going to invade another country, thinks they're the only ones that have PTSD, and while we're yeah. sitting here, literate, peeling, you know, and peeling off our own skin to sleep, we live like walking debris, swallow snakes, swallow whole pharmacies. There's quite a bit in here where he references just how mentally exhausting the work is. And it's something that comes up over and over. And then he at one point says that Zoloft makes his face swell up, a choice between sanity and slimness. So he's also, you know, there's a little comedy in here as well. But it's interesting because it's like, I don't know very many Palestinians that sit here and talk about not only mental health, but, but also having to like what they're doing, right? What they're doing to actually treat the situation that they're, that they're handling. How many of us are on medication? How many of us need medication, but just can't access it? How many of us are talking to therapists? How many of us need therapists? How many of us have found therapists that are totally not sufficient because we're trying to explain to them the trauma of, being in an intergenerational colonial struggle and it just doesn't land right when your therapist is named, you know, Becky or whatever.
1: She's like, is it apartheid? Are you sure?
0: Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, I have struggled with this a lot because I'm like, I got to find you know, like finding a good therapist is, it's really like finding like a it's almost like finding a romantic partner. Like you have to go through a lot till you find the right one. And they're not- well, my all-
1: therapist will not be happy to hear that.
0: <laughs> Why? Uh,
1: just because I think he want, would want to keep romance and, and <laughs> work separate.
0: Yeah, but my point is, is you got to find the right fit, right? Yeah, yeah. You got to find the right fit. When you're Palestinian and a lot of your trauma comes from resisting, you know, colonial violence, whether it be physically or psychologically or whatever it may be, then you need to find somebody who understands that. And that's not going to be everybody. But I'm glad that he tackled mental health. I'm glad that he let the world into that part of the struggle.
1: There's a lot of reference to snakes, right? Swallowing him, swallowing things. It's like, you think that that's maybe a biblical reference as well?
0: I mean, it could be, right? Because he does speak about In another poem, he speaks about an encounter where he is talking to an employee of G4S. G4S is the company that is a security contractor in the occupied West Bank for the Israeli government. It basically runs like the prisons, the police training centers, the checkpoints, their active settlements. They're heavy
1: users of the secret Facebook for Palestinians.
0: Yeah, for sure. They're the ones liking
1: the comments.
0: Muhammad writes that G4S is complicit in Israel's mass incarceration of Palestinian children. So he writes that many of the 500 to 700 Palestinians who are arrested, detained, and prosecuted by Israel are held in G4S equipped prisons. But he describes an encounter with a G4S, like low level employee. And I don't know where this takes place. And the exchange that takes place between them, he talks about how he's from the land of Christ and he makes sort of biblical references throughout. So yeah, it could be, could very well be. He also, this is, I'm actually happy we're on this poem because one of the things that he says is that he he brings up this issue of, do you really have choice? Do you really have choice in what you're doing? And he's thinking, he's talking about her and he says, what war could she wage when the only wage we know is minimal? What Mm. war could she wage when choice left the equation? when voice was robbed from our throats. And, you know, this is, again, something we've talked about on uh, on the show before, the idea that so many people end up participating in this machinery of oppression, but that it's not their choice. And first and foremost, I think about like Palestinians building settlements, for example, sometimes very close to the rubble of their destroyed homes. But do they have a choice?
1: Yeah, it reminds me of the story of the people who are like doctors and lawyers, people who have all types of, you know, civil society jobs, mm-hmm. and they're working on Israeli construction sites, because yes. that's all that's available to them, right? Yes. Their law practice was frozen and destroyed, their, you know, hospital was bombed, whatever. And so now it's like, right. well, you work where it's safe. And the place that is unlikely to get Destroyed is the new Israeli settlement.
0: Right. And so then you participate in your oppression, but that's the only thing that in the day to day will give you some means of putting food in your family's mouth.
1: You got to make ends meet. Like, are you going to starve? It's
0: very twisted. And I can't imagine, again, the psychological impact of having to go to work knowing that you're building. A settlement that is going to further cement your ethnic cleansing as a people it's
1: very similar to the story of american slavery right to the people who were human trafficked into turtle island and then their labor was extracted from them violently because they had no other option they would be murdered and i actually just saw a video about a plantation that was running until like 1960 wow like the south yeah and the people there who were enslaved they had no idea about the civil rights movement until like the mass march on washington basically wow
0: 1960.
1: They were still murdering. I mean, they're still they're still murdering people and hanging them from trees in the United States. Like right now in California in Chatsworth in Los Angeles, they've lynched many people recently.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly this this oppression does not does not end. Right. If anything, we just don't hear about it or it changes form. But it but it doesn't ever cease. So in one of the poems, I thought of you, actually, Michael, <laughs> it's called Elderly Woman Falls Asleep on My Shoulder. That's not why I thought of you.
1: I could I could see where I, I thought, would come up.
0: There's a part where Hamed and the elderly woman are at a checkpoint and the soldier at the checkpoint is blonde and sunburnt. And I started laughing because it reminded me of how you've said that before on the pod that that they have skin cancer because they're not supposed to be there. <laughs> An invader not from the land. Blonde and sunburned.
1: I hope she never has access to aloe. I hope her skin literally peels off.
0: Right? <laughs> this is a passage I want to share that is from the poem called Rivka in, in the book. And I think it really perfectly describes a sentiment I have. As a Palestinian in exile. The colonizers, youthful, differently clothed, rifle smacking against their hips, terrorist nation, celebrated stolen property, callous. I cried, not for the house, but for the memories I could have had inside it. That is totally the same sentiment that I found myself having as a Palestinian in exile. And that is that I live in this past that doesn't exist, you know, where I think about what my life would have been like and what memories would I have made and and how things would have been different. and you know, how my family would have been, right? Would some of the family drama that we we've had being in exile would that never have happened maybe because we wouldn't have been under certain stressors or pressure. I cried not for the house but for the memories I could have had inside it. It's something I I I understand very 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 well.
1: I think a lot about alternate histories as well. Yeah. There's a couple instances in, in colonial US history where like just things could have gone a little differently. The, the election between Truman and his opponent, it was there was a guy named Henry Wallace who was the vp to fdr henry wallace wanted basically equality between black people and white people in like the 40s he was very progressive for his time he had some other things but like by and large he was one of the more progressive candidates he cared about health care he wanted to take care of people and instead the united states got harry truman who dropped nuclear bombs on hiroshima and nagasaki unnecessarily right there's always the the lie that like it saved a bunch of lives but it didn't there's that's nonsense the general himself said that it wasn't necessary they did it as a means to scare the other colonial powers in the region like they just wanted to be seen as reckless and potentially dangerous and that was their foreign policy strategy so that's one huge instance, right? That obviously changes the landscape of the entire world because when they dropped those bombs, it changed everything for pretty much everyone. And then another instance, obviously, is Bernie Sanders, where we yeah. could have had him twice. And instead, what we got was Donald Trump and now Joe Biden. And, you know, I'm not saying Bernie Sanders would have changed everything. I don't even really believe in institutional politics but he certainly would have been better than what
0: we got. Yeah, it's hard not to think about those things because at least in, in in the cases that you reference, it's always about an alternative path that would have been better. Yeah. Right? That you hope would have been better. You have reason yeah. to believe would have been better. Yeah. And certainly for me it's the same. You know, when I imagine being able to grow up in Palestine, I imagine being able to grow up in a free and independent Palestine that received its independence right after the other mandate countries, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, yeah and was just Palestine.
1: Palestine would have the amassed wealth of like a mini Saudi Arabia, if not for the extraction of resources from the Zionist regime. Palestine has already been one of the innovators of technology while under occupation and siege and so we can only imagine what would have been if not for this nasty militia of zionist gangs who stole everything and murdered nearly everyone
0: yeah i think about that when i hear about when when my friends in gaza tell me about how like there's these coding clubs in gaza and i'm like but they barely have electricity like yeah. They're like yeah they do it like you know they figured they, it out they figured it out like but that's the thing too kids grow up really fast and then they have to deal with adult problems really quickly and that's another theme that muhammad's poetry covers in the same poem rifka he speaks about his three-year-old sister meha he says meha three-year-old sister cried her innocence watched the zionist settlers burn her bed yet another nekba another divine crime scene now meha is eight she knows her nekba isn't the first she knows she's not the only child whose bed was burned she knows children are burned Mohammed abu khudair 16 gasoline i don't know if you remember that story of muhammad abu khudair yeah, of course yeah who was lit on fire by some settlers just really brutal stuff and you know she's three years old watching her bed be burned
1: yeah these are the same people who will tell you about the holocaust in a moment's notice while they're lighting somebody else on fire
0: and then not only is she three, watching her bed be burned, but then when she's eight, she already understands that her trauma isn't even like unique. Yeah. She knows her nekba isn't the first. She she knows about all the other nekbas. She knows oh, this is just part of you know what I experience is just part of this bigger nekba, which you know a lot of other people have been affected by. That's a lot for an eight-year-old to know. Eight years old. And she doesn't know it because you know, her parents are cruel and just telling her horror stories. She knows it because she's living. it. Yeah. She can't not know it.
1: She doesn't have the privilege to not know it. Exactly. Meanwhile, exactly. there are people across the world who are like, I don't know. I don't know enough about it to weigh in. It's like, well, it's been over 70 years. So definitely take your time making your mind
0: i literally flipped open to this page. As you said, it's been over 70 years. Take your time. The last line of this poem called 1948, 1998 is 70 some years later, we haven't lived a day.
1: The occupation is robbing people of their lives actively, robbing them of their opportunities, robbing you of memories that you could have created, robbing every single individual who encounters it of their time, of their feeling Energy, of, yeah, of their health, feeling of.
0: Physical all health, all of it. Like even Safety. if you're not even if you're not being tortured in a, you know, an Israeli dungeon, like my friend Muhammad Burnat, who is still being held by Israel without charge and whose court date continues to get postponed, it's been postponed yet again. Even if that's not happening to you, best case scenario, you're still having to navigate the physical and psychological effects of occupation, which you cannot escape. 70 some years later, we haven't lived a day. Three generations of people who have not lived a day.
1: Meanwhile, you've got you know the colonizer on TikTok making dances with guns and,
0: and using your awards. music,
1: eating your food and yeah. claiming it as their own
0: and then getting awarded by the army, the colonial army, for improving Israel's image.
1: Really, really makes you commend the mental strength of Palestinians who have not snapped and just went like fully loose cannon.
0: Yeah, because everybody would in the same situation. Like, why does the world expect of us what they would never accept for themselves? I always say that about Palestine, is people expect Palestinians to be some sort of like super human, able to tolerate and accept and and, and navigate circumstances that nobody in the yeah. first world would ever, ever, ever accept for five minutes. Look how people act when they have to wait in line. Look how people act when there's traffic. Look how people act when you know something isn't going their way or when the waiter comes back and says, oh, sorry, we're out of this. People yeah. have meltdowns every day in the first world about nothing.
1: Bagels, can I speak to your manager type situations? Yeah. Every Palestinian is expected to be a UN peace negotiator, a lawyer, a doctor, a therapist, you know what I mean? To All in patients, one.
0: Yeah, to have patients for 70 years.
1: And if and they don't, keep, wow, yeah. that's, well, wow, you're so emotional. You know what I mean? You've got, right. you've got like, uh, just, uh, just take the emotion out of your voice. And it's like, well, people have been being murdered for 70 plus years. So, The fact that there's emotion in my voice is regular. It's regular. There there wouldn't, if anybody who doesn't have emotion in their voice talking about this is kind of weird. Yeah. Right? If you can talk about this from a sanitized perspective, you are weird.
0: You're weird. You got problems. Yeah. Don't
1: talk to me like a newscaster voice about, you know, children being murdered. Don't do that.
0: Yeah. I remember during. I think it was 2014 during Israel's assaults on Gaza. I was in Paris and I got into my elevator and there was a French lady in the elevator and she looked, she turned, she looked at me and uh, she started complaining about how slow the elevator was going. And she was like really upset. She was really, it was, she was irked. She could, she could see, ah, this, elevator i'm gonna be late it's so slow oh it's, it gets slower every day i i we have to do something about it and i was like yeah i agree and i'm just sitting there like the words that are coming out of my mouth and then the the scenes in my brain are just like they're they're not matching because yeah. i'm sitting here thinking about gaza and i'm just like yes this elevator is really slow
1: There are people who will harness the type of energy that could be useful for liberation struggle. And they will just use it on mundane, unnecessary things, right? Because it's easier. It's easier to do that. It's easier to be like, let me talk to the manager of Jamba Juice versus like, let me talk to the CEO of oppression, right? Like it's harder to do that.
0: For sure. Or they will take on like, really I want to call it like fake activism, but just like activism. That is not controversial, like, like bullying online bullying, like Mm -hmm. nobody is pro bullying. Everybody agrees that you didn't
1: meet my bully. He was very pro bully.
0: (laughs) It's like, you know, like the, the first lady initiatives move your body. Michelle Obama, what was her thing? Like, she had a garden. Get up and move. Yeah. It's not controversial.
1: How how terrible is it that that's where America's at, where the first lady is not a- asking you for exercise? She's just like, hey, just just move a little bit.
0: Oh, yeah, let's move. It was called let's move. <laughs> like, you, you see what I mean, though, right? It's, it's yeah. not, you're not, what are you, you know, nobody's saying don't move.
1: Some people are anti-movement. So
0: <laughs> nobody say don't. They move. hate.
1: Hey, you know who hates movements? Intelligence agencies. Yeah. The CIA very anti movement. They didn't like the Black Power movement.
0: <laughs> so it's like okay, fine. She probably put a lot of energy into that, but then also like
1: yeah, Melania Trump came out against online bullying. Which she is was funny the on,
0: because, she she was the online bully initiative. Yeah, and it's like okay, it's nobody like, nobody's pro online bullying. We all know that but her
1: husband, her husband was bullying people <laughs> online all the time. It was, it was a delicious little mashup.
0: That's true. So maybe that one was more controversial. <laughs> I don't know, but it's like,
1: just, that's the only way she's willing to talk to him is like, Hey, I'm just going to put out some tweets to let you know what you should be doing.
0: It's all on your point of like people using their energy for like non-issues or fake issues or.
1: Yeah. And then sometimes when people have things that are going well for them they have to create issues in their lives because they thrive on conflict in their own life they they thrive on like tension in their relationships and so they create these fictitious things because they don't experience real oppression
0: like the elevator lady
1: yeah they've never actually stood at a checkpoint and had their time stolen from them so they're like, you know what, this elevator isn't fast enough. And it's like, ma'am, shut up. Respectfully, <laughs> shut the fuck up.
0: Yeah. And I, I mean, again, it, it marked me like I will never forget her. I will never forget that in exchange. Right. Let me let me share one more thing that I marked up from Mohammed's book. So he writes a poem about the incident. That took place on July 16, 2014, when Israel kills four boys in Gaza, aged between nine and 14, while they were playing soccer on a beach. They were literally targeted by Israeli airstrikes while they were visibly playing soccer on the beach in Gaza. It was a bad PR moment for the apartheid state. They had to do a lot of clean up in the in the aftermath to try to justify why they did it and then in some instances you saw their spokespersons going on in interviews being like we are deeply sorry it was like a mixed bag of all sorts of bullshit one of the things that he writes which resonates he writes here we know two suns earth's friend and white phosphorus because in gaza it was documented and established that Israel was using white phosphorus on Palestinians during their military assaults. And if you don't know about the effects of white phosphorus on the skin, you can look it up. He also says, here we know two things, death and the few breaths before it. This reminds me of something like that I saw in relation to Syria. It was like an image of a boy. And he says, in Syria, we know we have six daily prayers, not five we have the five plus the funeral prayer because, as to say that every day there's a funeral, so every day they're going to the funeral prayer. You know, in Gaza, one thing that I got from my family in, during May was this idea that like everybody was ready to die. Everybody was ready to die. People talked about it all the time. People were like, that's, you know, we're ready. We're ready to go. Like we're ready to die. Not because they wanted to die, <laughs> they didn't want to die. But, but when you have this, Massive amount of weaponry that is being dropped on your home and on your city and on your neighborhood, and seconds separating one bomb or one drone from the next, you have to wrestle with that and you have to sort of make up your mind about it. And it's something I heard from, you know, my brother-in-law's family. It's something I heard from friends there. Everybody was ready to die, and everybody was saying it. And so when Muhammad writes, here we know two things, death and a few breaths before it. It also captures very much that idea which I have heard from from friends and family in Gaza, that death is is all around them and Everything else they're living is just like the few minutes before it.
1: Uh, And it reminds me of what he said in an earlier poem where he wishes the earth would open up and swallow. It also reminds me of the Iranian scientist who survived assassination, right? When asked about seeing the car and his fallen comrades, he said, I envy them because he has to wake up every day and live his reality. At a certain point, death becomes a reprieve from life. Like you said, the human being is dignified. And to be robbed of dignity in such a way, death becomes a reprieve from living that life.
0: Look, I mean, the book was a real pleasure to read. I'm going to read it again because I'm sure there's so much I missed the first time around. There's a lot in here. Everybody pick up a copy. Rifka is the book. It'll it'll give you stuff to, th- to think about.
1: And Mohammed Okurd is currently on a book tour across the United States. He's going to various colleges, SJPs, holding events, book signings. Make sure you check out his schedule. He might have some upcoming events near you. Go and support him.
0: Yes. Beit Selem has published a new report in November 2021 about Israel's misappropriation of Palestinian land in the occupied West Bank through settler violence. The really interesting thing about this report is that it basically connects the state's theft of Palestinian land to the settler violence that is taking place against Palestinians. And it shows how these two things are related and work in concert with one another and are not separate and distinct phenomenon. I just want to cover this a little bit because I think it's really interesting to see how the state not only turns a blind eye to settler violence, but is actively using settler violence as a means to solidify its own land theft of Palestinian land. So it's actually a means for the state to continue to steal Palestinian land. So just to summarize the situation as it stands, Israel has built more than 280 settlements in the occupied West Bank. Those 280 settlements are home to more than 440,000 Jewish settlers. Of these settlements, only around 135 of them were officially established and recognized by israel that makes around 150 of them not officially recognized by the state so that's a lot yeah i know
1: you're telling me these popped up without the recognition and nothing's happening meanwhile they're managing to demolish bedouin villages in like the jordan valley so yo if i had a business and more than half of it was off the books i'd go to jail
0: yeah for sure so basically the settlements dominate and take over hundreds of thousands of denims of Palestinian land. As a result, Palestinians end up having limited or no access to that land. We've talked about this, I think, in last week's episode, the ways in which Israel steals Palestinian land. One of the ways that it does this is that it issues military orders. It declares the area state land. It declares the area a firing zone. It declares the area a nature reserve. And then it just takes the land for the state. That being said, in parallel, other areas of land are just taken over by settlers through daily acts of violence, including attacks on Palestinians and their property. So the report goes on to say, while the two tracks appear unrelated, the one track being the state. To who?
1: <laughs> Fucking Stevie Wonder? What are you talking about? <laughs>
0: well, no, but hold on. I mean, you could say that, OK, on, on the one hand, settlers are doing their own thing, you know, trying to take land for themselves. And the state is also doing its own thing, using the law to take land for the state. Bait Salem report basically says that This is not true. There is, in fact, only one track, and that is that settler violence against Palestinians serves as a major informal tool at the hands of the state to take over more and more Palestinian land in the occupied West Bank. The state fully supports and assists these acts of violence, and its agents sometimes participate in them directly. As such, settler violence is a form of government policy aided and abetted by official state authorities and with their active participation. This is really important when we read about settler violence, oftentimes it is presented in the media as being like this sort of like rogue phenomenon. Oh, it's, you know, it's not all Israelis. Oh, that's just, you know, it's one bad apple. It's one, you know, it's just one settler. It's, it's not the state itself. It's not the ideology behind the state, but in fact it is all of those things. That's what the Beit sedem report is showing us. It's showing us that the state itself is actively supporting settler violence, benefiting from settler violence, using settler violence to solidify further land theft of Palestinian land. The report goes on to say that settler violence has been documented since the very early days of the occupation in countless reports, books, testimonials, etc. This consistent documentation has had almost no effect on settler violence against Palestinians, which has become part and parcel of life under occupation in the West Bank. Settler yeah, those
1: fucking, <laughs> those fucking psychos are like, hey, can you send me the video for my Instagram? Yes,
0: yeah, seriously. The report speaks of how these violent acts include beating, throwing stones, issuing threats, torching fields, destroying Palestinian trees and crops, stealing crops, using live fire, damaging homes and cars, and in rare cases, homicide. In recent years, settlers and so-called farms- In rare
1: cases? Yeah. In well, rare cases?
0: yeah they don't provide a number but anyways um,
1: are they talking about steak what the fuck
0: yeah i don't know <laughs> i don't know the Salem report says that in 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 recent cases settlers have been violently chasing palestinian farmers and shepherds away from their field and from pasture land and water sources that they have used for generations we covered a story like that a few weeks ago i think now here's where the the state gets involved so the military avoids confronting violent settlers as a matter of policy. Again, we've heard of anecdotal situations where there's a scenario of settler violence against Palestinians in in the occupied West Bank, and then, you know, soldiers are there and they don't get involved. But what the Beit Selem report is doing is that it confirms that this is a matter of policy. This is not just one soldier who didn't get involved and who didn't protect Palestinians. This is a policy matter.
1: Yeah, remember when the settlers attacked the army? Yeah, the settlers attacked the army, and the army was like, "Ah, it's no big deal. Just a couple yeah. of tear gas canisters that'll that'll take care of it." Yeah.
0: So the military avoids confronting violent settlers as a matter of policy, and although soldiers have the authority and duty to detain and arrest settlers, they do not. As a rule, the military prefers to remove Palestinians from their own farmland rather than confront the settlers using various tactics such as issuing closed military zone orders that apply to Palestinians only or firing tear gas, stun grenades, rubber bullets, and even live rounds. Sometimes soldiers actively participate in the settler attacks or look on from the sidelines. So basically, the policy is this. Settler violence takes place. The soldiers, instead of protecting the Palestinians from the settler violence, use violence on Palestinians or declare the area a closed military area and then basically effectuate the land theft in that way. They use the settler violence as a pretext to say, Oh well we're just gonna eliminate the violence by taking over this land
1: yeah remember when they declared that playground a military area right like structures of oppression that exist in concert with the state and work together with the law this exists as a parallel in the in united states as well right the Ku klux klan existed as the longer arm of the law white supremacy was upheld not only through the police, but through the extracurricular fucking terrorization of black people by the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And it continues to this day. You see how the judge in the Kyle Rittenhouse case is basically, you know, concerned about like the emotional state of this dude pouring crocodile tears. He's talking about how you can't, pinch to zoom in on an image because he thinks that would be unfair and it's just like one of the things that the ipad allows he's clearly got a vested interest in the outcome of the case and it's because this white child used state colonial violence to suppress a Black power movement.
0: We're going to post a link to the report. The report presents five different case studies that illustrate how continuous systemic violence carried out by settlers is a part of Israel's official policy and how it drives massive takeover of Palestinian farmland. There's a bunch of testimonies. It will really make you think differently the next time you read a story about settler violence because although it rarely is reported on in the mainstream media, if it ever is reported on, it's reported on as. A sort of unique event a singular event a one-time thing and this report really challenges and rebuts that notion completely showing it for what it is it's one of the tools of ethnic cleansing that is part of official state policy
1: yeah it's a it's how it came into existence the idea that it, anybody could be like oh it's isolated you have to have amnesia to be like yeah. oh yeah this is brand new i've never
0: I mean, the whole state was born out of settler violence.
1: Ethnic cleansing.
0: The whole state is settler violence. Yeah. That's the story of the, story. the occupation. That's how they got there.
1: Not a brand new story. It's, uh, at this point, it's kind of old.
0: an old story but yeah definitely a report worth checking out
1: folks that has been another episode of the palestine pod thank you all so much for listening please go check out our sources at www.palestinepod.com follow us on instagram at the palestine pod send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and please check us out on patreon at www.patreon.com slash that's been another episode of the palestine pod thank you so much have a great day